When logic and reasoning fails, begging and pleading gives way to an act of defiance against coach's wishes that placed a live wire runner into his very first steeplechase, kickstarting a career highlighted by two Olympic Games. On the podcast today, we take a long, slow run through the mind of Anthony Pham Familetti, Olympic steeplechaser, founder of Reckless Running, and sub-four-minute treadmill miler. Excuse the audio at times, we caught up with Anthony in his car with a rainstorm overhead, but I promise it's well worth the listen. So if you're ready for the show, buckle up and let's go. Welcome to the Athlinks Podcast. I am your host, Troy Bousseau, coming to you from the beautiful foothills of the Rocky Mountains. It is November 12th, 2020, and this is episode seven. What's up, Mr. Femaletti? How are you doing today? How's it going? It's going I'm good. I'm happy to be here. It's going great. On the podcast today, we have Anthony Famaletti, who is a two-time Olympian steeplechaser, which is, uh, I guess you could best describe that as 3,000 meters of track obstacle racing. Um, he is the founder of Reckless Running, a super badass apparel company with some really cool rock and roll meets running designs, as well as SportSafe, a CBD company geared toward uh, clean USADA water compliant uh, CBD balms, um, as well as Recover Light Therapy, which is some stuff that we can maybe get into. So um, some of you may know Anthony from a video that we posted back in December. I think it was December 5th or so of last year, 2019, um, where armed with only a pair of Skechers and a Zwift-powered treadmill, Anthony broke four minutes uh, for the mile uh, on the treadmill run at the running event. So uh, we got a ton of amazing feedback, Anthony, when when we posted that Frankly, I was kind of shocked, um, you and I talked about this, that I think the vast majority of comments and and um, um, just craziness came from total non-runners uh, rather than more of the hardcore running community. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's something like you can just, you see that 15 miles per hour on the on the screen and you see you running, <laughs> running that for four minutes. It's frankly mind-blowing for, I think, most people to... Um, to even consider that. So, uh, um, yeah, I think, I think it's very relatable in that everyone's run on a treadmill at some point in time yeah. and they've probably snuck the mile per hour up <laughs> to cheer, out of curiosity yeah. for 10 or 15 seconds. Whereas if you see a professional runner race, you really can't understand what they're doing, how fast that is. I mean, you can, you can see the distance they cover, but when you can actually try it, <laughs> it changes things. Yeah. So it was really fun to try yeah, on the treadmill. Yeah, that's a great point. So there's lots of stuff that that you and I are going to get into today. Um, I want to. I actually want to start with a with an opening quote. So I'm going to read you something. Sure. Reckless running is to run with reckless abandon. Run in a way that sheds outer restriction, disintegrates the perceptions of how you should or shouldn't be, and most importantly, annihilates projections of what you can or cannot do. When you run with reckless abandon, your entire being becomes freer and lighter as you initiate the process of gradually letting go of the things that only serve to slow you down. To run recklessly is to not be afraid to trek out into the unproven ground of life and snag your outer skin on the rough terrain of the path. In this way, you will find your true self through running. Woo! How eloquent! (laughs) (laughs) That is some that is some deep brimstone badass stuff there. That is uh I guess that's 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 
25, 30 years of, of running as hard as you possibly can yeah. every year, year after year, you know, and, and not just doing it as a means to an end, but as a process of self-discovery. And yeah. I guess that's, manifest as a quote like that, I guess. So that was taken from the Reckless Running, your website, um, your apparel company. And I, I, you know, I just, I kind of had to start there. That is, um, that's a take on running that I think for me, it, it really encapsulates for me personally, like what running is all about. I, um, running is something to me, it's very freeing. It's very, um, purposeful but it's it's i love i love just your attitude of just the whole just reckless abandon um i love that snag your outer skin on the rough terrain of the path uh you'll find your true self through running have you yeah is this something that i mean do you remember feeling this way as a kid when you were running Well, I'll have to go back to the, the beginning of my time in sport, which we joked briefly that we both have a background in wrestling. I didn't mention my background, but as a middle schooler, I wrestled first. So technically, you called wrestling a combat sport. <laughs> <laughs> so my first introduction to sport was a combat sport, but I was under 90 pounds, rail thin, like five foot three, and you could break me in half, you know? So I, I got to maybe wrestle one time. Mm. And when I did, it was full on. It was amazing. The kids were going crazy because it was like, I was like an unleashed tiger. Um, but I was never, and I joke, I joke about this a lot with my athletes that I coach and different people that I, I lecture. I was never really invited to be on teams or do, you know, great things in sport based off my stature and size. And most distance runners will tell you that. And it even went to the point where, and it sounds like an exaggeration, but in gym class, I was so meek that I would be the last picked all the time and mm. people would make assumptions based off my ability. And so I was never really given the chance. And so when I did finally get an opportunity, when a, a, a coach encouraged me to go into running, it was sort of, um, well, here's my chance to show what I really am capable of. I wanted to make a point because I wasn't sure I'd get that opportunity again. Mm. And so I did run with pure reckless abandon. And um, the very first race I did, I fainted halfway. In, in fifth grade when I was in a field day. Like I went so fast from the gun, I got to the halfway and I actually passed out. And I woke up to the gym teacher smacking in the face saying, you know, are you, are you okay? And I was like, did I win? He said, you didn't make it halfway. <laughs> and that was a total embarrassment. Like my mom was there crying and everything. I get chance in middle school. I was like, I got to prove myself. Maybe that's why they're not picking me. They all saw me faint in that one race or something. <laughs> I don't know. The, it, was, um, it wasn't the fainting. Think, it was asking if you won. I think that was the. Because well, I was like, did I win? And yeah. he's like, you didn't even make it halfway. So the cool thing with that and, and, you know, whatever philosophy or religious practice or, you know, whatever your, your background in science, like the beginner's mind is always the best mind where you're sort of limitless and the potential is so open because you don't know what you're capable of or not. You don't know what the boundaries are. And so you just go, and I kind of I did that in that race, but I just went way beyond the boundary. But the great thing about it was the worst possible scenario that can ever happen to a runner happened. Not only did I not win, which was embarrassing because I was in the lead, 
but my entire body and all my faculties shut down. <laughs> mm. So it was this total nightmare scenario as if you're going to wake up in a dream. And I come to and it's still there. <laughs> so I got that out of the way. Like that got pushed out of the way. So I was like, you know, that wasn't so bad. But now I have to get another shot. <laughs> Well, you know, so I, one, I, I, yeah. I have to think, like, I wonder if that in some way, I mean, most of us can't push ourselves to that level is the reality. You know, we, like the body will, or, you know, what is it? The, the, um, your mind will break far, you know, way sooner than your body will. And yet you, f- I mean, in fifth grade found a way to break your body, like your mind allowed your body to get to that point. So uh, I wonder if there was a, uh, you clearly were able to tap into something at an extremely young age that allowed you to, um, you know, kind of achieve that 105, 110% of what your body was physically capable of. You pushed it a little bit too hard, obviously. Um, but I think that that, you know, I wonder if that's, if that's part of your superpower there. Well, you know, this goes into whole nature versus nurture, you know, and, and obviously you've got to have parts of each side and, you know, I'm really excited to do this podcast, by the way, because I've listened to you talk and you're a pretty brilliant guy. So I'm sure we can go any direction with it. But, um, you know, I, I ended up studying psychology and got a bachelor's in arts psychology from the University of Tennessee because I was thinking in this way from such a young age, you know, and using the mind to do things that, because I don't really see myself as a very talented athlete and I'm doing things that I probably shouldn't be able to do, especially mm-hmm. based off of VO2 max tests and things like that. So that's this immeasurable thing, right? But if you go to nature, my brother was almost 10 years older than me. So if I ever wanted to play games with him and his friends or participate in any way, he was very shrewd. He's like, nope, mm. yeah, you can't, you know, he wouldn't let me come. So I had to prove, even if they were playing in our own backyard, I had to prove that I could play at their level for them to let me in. So what I would do is I would jump in in a way where I would impress his friends and be like, he's on my team. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, let him, let him play. And then my brother would have to relent. And how much older so was my he learning, than you? So if I was 10, he was 20, you know? Wow. You know, if I was five, he was 15. Yeah. He was just about 10 years older. That's a very steep learning curve to have to jump. And it was just like Atari, Super Mario, whatever yeah. we were doing. I wasn't allowed to play unless I played at his level. Mm. And, you know, so anyone, anyone will tell you like, you know, whether it's Michael Jackson or Tiger Woods, like if you're in this environment where the expectations are high, right. And you don't get to participate unless you live up to those expectations. And sometimes it's a negative scenario where the parent is very, you know, tiger mom, tiger dad, helicopter, putting a lot of pressures. I don't like those environments. I don't think they're healthy long-term, but in a, you know, this sort of natural emerging environment where, you know, I, I, you can't choose when you're going to have kids if you're, you know, <laughs> married in that way. And it's just, you, you've had this span of, I was one of the last kids in a large family mm. that it was like, all right, sink or swim here. And I don't want to just sit around. I want to play. Yeah. So I learned to pick things up very quickly and fully immerse myself for better or worse, because the consequences were you can't participate or you can. And then it stemmed over to, again, in like high school, being chosen to be able to play on a certain team with your friends or sit on the sideline and watch and play. <laughs> huh. So, so I, I got to even where, you know, like when we played football in, in high school, I'd have to get creative and say, all right, they finally take me to play. I'd tell the guy, like, look, you're, you're the quarterback. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sprint to the whole other side <laughs> of the field. You're going to throw it in the air and I'm going to pull it down. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then we did that and I'd get it every single time mm-hmm. and we'd win. And then I started getting picked for everything. And then the next week, the gym teacher says, we're changing the rules. No more Hail Mary. I was like, what the hell, man? <laughs> That's not fair. You know, I can't be a running back. Then I'm going to get crushed in half. Yeah. So I had to get really, really creative. So I, I think that a lot of people have all these tools, but they just don't utilize them because there's no necessity for that. And the kids who seem to be an only child and spoiled and coddled obviously don't, you know, it's given to them easily. You know, it's, it's a cliche, but it's sort of true. So I think the best athletes are those who tend to come through hardship or just have that countenance where they enjoy the process of beating yourself up, you know, it's yeah. snagging that skin, snagging that skin on the rock. Like, why do you do cycle cross, Troy? Like, why? <laughs> you don't have to. You're, 49 now, you said? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do it because I'm an idiot. Yeah, you know, I I, I think that what you said there in terms of the, you know, best athletes coming through um, a tough, you know, frictionful um, upbringing, I think that's true of everything. I think that, you know, the, the most interesting, the most successful, the most, you know, whatever, um, you know, amazing superlative you can assign to somebody, it's always tied to this, um, this story, you know, this, this kind of backstory of struggle or, um, or at least friction, you know, I mean, you, you have to kind of, you have to rough it up a little bit to, to, you know, establish a personality to, to build up, um, you know, just a personal skill of navigating life. Yeah. I mean, you know, the stimulus response and and being in an environment where certain stimulus are added, you're going to get a certain response, you know? And I think the psychological side of sports or just everyday living is sort of overlooked. And we only look at it when it's off kilter and there's excess depression or sadness or disorder of the mind. We don't look at it as a tool. And when I started to study these things in college and I started to understand how the brain works and read about the F Skinner or Carl Jung or all these different people, I started to integrate it into how I would compete, not just at events, but on the day to day with, you know, athletes on the team who are better than me and, you know, hang on their shoulder, be willing to do a little bit more than they were willing to do. I'd always sort of compare it. And, and this is sort of the metaphorical sort of peak of this. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie Gattaca with yeah. um, Jude Law Great and movie. Ethan Hawke. And this is sort of where we're going, where you have these genetic, genetically modified people. And one is so, you, know, you can cho- you, in the future, you can choose your kid, you can choose their eye color, yeah. what their IQ is and all these things. And Jude Law, he looks like the guy who would be that, right? <laughs> Ethan <laughs> Hawke was someone who slipped through, who wasn't supposed to be, he, he, you know, he wasn't supposed to be one of those high level people, but he slipped through. So he was using Jude Law's credentials yeah. with his uh you know skin fingerprints and you know different things to to fake it in that world and be in a high level position to try to make it i guess as an, as an astronaut and so um you know they were they were talking about this one competition that they would do where jude law would swim out to this island and ethan hawk would go with them and they would compete to see who could uh who could go to the island and come back and win and mm-hmm. every time Ethan Hawk would win and he's like why did you how did you beat me at the end of the movie said how did you beat me he said because I was willing to not come back <laughs> mm. when I went out and I know a lot of ultra runners like that I know a lot of 
endorse actions like that. They're not self-hating people. They're not uh, masochistic in that way. But there's something about living on that very edge of stimulus where you're really feeling the pressure of life and everything is heightened to the degree of like you feel every breath and you're just exasperated and you feel every cell in your legs just deteriorating. And I've got friends who had to finish the race with rhabdo and had to get, you know, treatments for their kidneys that shut down because they kept going. And then they do a race like two weeks later. What are you doing to yourself? And you you have to ask yourself, like, what is that? Like, like, why, why are they doing that? And it's interesting because I, I try to, and this is, I think, a good way to tie it into what athletes does, because I wanted to dabble into the ultra world a little bit mm-hmm. and see what some of these races were like, just because of the way I am, like we were talking about. But I didn't, I always said, would people do this if they couldn't promote that they did it? Mm. You just did it for yourself. You couldn't, you couldn't say you did the race. Like Fight Club doesn't exist. You didn't do it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, a secret ultra race for a secret society of ultra runners. Um, so I don't know the answer to that question, but for myself, I didn't. I didn't want to do it for that reason. I wanted to see if I would want to do it again, yeah. even if I didn't tell people. So I wanted to sign up for this race under a pseudonym. <laughs> okay. Because I didn't want athletes or you know anyone picking up my results because I was totally green. Mm. I didn't know what was going to happen. And so discovery phase, and I really put myself out there like, oh, man, it was brutal. And the answer was after the fact that, yes, the day of the race and the day after, I said, I'll never do it again. And then five days later, you're looking for the next one online. Yeah. I, I can't explain. I can't explain why. Yeah, we, we yeah. call that, uh, you know, our logo being the flame and all that. We call that the reignition moment. And I, and I, just, <laughs> I discovered it, um, I think, in my first race where – uh, not being a runner, et cetera. It's, it's, you just, you, you're in so much pain. And I will say, I mean, I told you before, like I loved the open water swim in a triathlon because of the, you know, the sort of physical, um, scrum side of it. But I will tell you, there wasn't a single swim that I did where halfway through it, I wasn't kicking myself in the ass going, why the hell do you do this? It sucks. It is terrible. But then as I'm coming out of the water, even with the rest of the race left to go, I'm just like, God, God, I love that. I can't wait till the next one. So I don't, I don't know what it is that, um, that, that allows that mind to, you know, like it just reignites. I don't know if it, if it needs to happen or if it, I don't know what, what causes it, but it's, it's something that's very addictive to, um, yeah. to, I think, a lot of athletes. Yeah. And I think the future of not just running, but of all sport, is finding the balance point for those ventures and these sort of new, you know, who knows what's going to pop up and having the opportunity and ability to do those things, but then balancing that so that you can have a long amount of time to continue to do them. You yeah. don't want to be doing that into your 30s, like some of these amazing ultra runners, and then they break a shin or tear an Achilles and then they got to go to cycling and they're still trying to find that, that feeling that you're describing. But it's not quite the same. So finding that balance point is important. So I was going to ask you, like, have you guys ever thought of doing an asterisk next to certain, you yes. know, like if an, if an athlete registers and say, this is, and it says discovery phase. Yeah. Yeah, we actually, <laughs> you're doing a race that's brand new. Yeah. Know, we, discovery we, phase. we used to have that. Um, we had a previous version of the site. It was red and black. Um, so some of our listeners or early members would remember that. And, and you could put in like what, what, if your race was an A, B or C race, you could put in 
I was injured, I was sick, I was training, I was whatever, I was experimenting with a new pair of shoes. We are bringing all that stuff back. So we didn't we didn't delete any okay. of that old data. When we rebuilt the site, um, you know, one of the things that we went through, not to make this about um, Athlinks, but with the acquisition by Lifetime Fitness, we integrated with with ChronoTrack and a couple of other scoring engines. We've really spent the last couple of years um, in a lot of different areas, making live results work and live tracking and, you know, all of those types of things. We've now built that foundation in, and now we're kind of getting back into the, um, the more personal side of Athlink. So, um, uh, the COVID stuff has been an obvious, an obvious drag on the industry, but for us, it's been, um, it's been a rare respite uh, away from racing where we've been able to focus on bringing a lot of, um, quality back into the code and slowing down and, and rebuilding a lot of stuff. So as we finish out the year and get into early next year, you'll see a lot of that stuff come back. Um, a lot of the cool functionality of the old site that had that stuff. Well, I'll, I'll tell you why this is important beyond just, you know, trying to find new races and try something new because it does take the pressure off of you to explore and not feel so performance driven. Yeah. Right. And then you're really getting, you know, what we're talking about with that initial quote, you're trying to hone that a little bit more. Yeah. But I, I coach high school level athletes in math. I have so many different high level athletes and some beginners. And you know, as an example of, I, I heard one of your podcasts recently where you were talking about these, uh, you know, if, if 5G were to come out, these very quick notifications, like someone could be in an ultra race, you know, right when they pass a, a mile post or if they made it past a certain treacherous area, just, mm-hmm. you know, keep live tracking, which is great. But at the same time, I was at my birthday party this past weekend, and I was talking to a friend who's also a parent of one of the assets I coach. And as I'm talking, I get seeing mm. such and such race results for national, you know, whatever. And all of a sudden, the tone of the conversation changed, and they're like, oh, what did they run? And so there's this immediate, unavoidable comparison, yeah. runner to runner, that my high school level athletes have, because they always have their phone. Yeah. They're on you know, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook. And they're getting all these notifications. So it's always in your face what your competition is doing and um, how they're advancing and where you're at in relation to it. Um, And so that adds this tension point that doesn't necessarily need to be there. So like I said, the the future of of integrating, because I'm not anti-tech and anti-science in any way. Um, And and how how you integrate those tools would be very important for how, you know, mentally stable people are in the future. Mm Because if you've got this constant, constant tension point where you're measuring against these sort of things that you shouldn't be measuring against, because in the past, you and I were younger, we had this bubble of our you know, team we're comparing to or regional athletes and friends. But other than that, it, it was uh, very infrequent and we weren't seeing data so quickly. And when we talk about stuff like athletes or whatever, GPS stats, it's also data-driven. Mm-hmm. And humans aren't data driven. We're, we're, you know, in a lot of ways emotionally driven, you know? So the question is how can you integrate the technology in that highlights what's so good about running, like we started off with that quote, yeah. but doesn't interfere and you have five page manifestos of depression for these ultra runners that yeah. live on a mountain cabin that's in the most beautiful view in the world why are you depressed you, well, right. you run for a living <laughs> every day on the mountain that's what everybody yeah. in the cubicle wants to do what are you talking about and so the one thing i'll say is the way things are changing 
And a good metaphor is like in the past, people played acoustic guitar, right? And um, the height of that was say Spanish guitar, really fast, very technical playing. And then blues came around, which was very, you know, minimalist and emotional way to play. And it changed everything because rock and roll emerged from that. But those acoustic guitars turned into Jimi Hendrix <laughs> when they got plugged in. Mm-hmm. And everyone will tell you that the second Jimi Hendrix integrated technology into what he's doing, it changed everything for the better. Now, it's hard to avoid the fact that Eddie Van Halen passed away. I'm a huge fan yeah. of Eddie Van Halen. My pre-race um, song often was Running with the Devil. Mm. You know, I'm not, you know, not such a bad guy necessarily, but it was a very uplifting song. <laughs> yeah. So you're saying here's the guy that took what you know Jimi Hendrix did and then really ran with it and used his virtuosity to do that. How do you turn someone in running into an Eddie Van Halen of running yeah. <laughs> with athletes, right? How do you do that? Well, and frankly, from our perspective, the, um, the thing that we've really tried to focus on this year um, is the storytelling side. So one, one of our old taglines was every athlete has a story or every race has a story, every result has a story. You know, it's, it's some variation of those. And, um, you know, I've been a Strava member for years. I don't ever check my Strava. I don't analyze my data. My data just goes there. Um, I wear a Garmin, but I, I only look at my Garmin in the moment. So I want to know what I'm running in that second, but I don't, I don't go back in and analyze a lot of that stuff. What I do love are the stories. I love the photographs. I just had, um, interviewed Boulder runner, Todd Straka takes these just unbelievable cell phone, um, photos on his runs. There's a guy, Ethan Newberry out there that just does the same thing. And it's, to me, it's just, again, it's, it's, you know, running was always a pair of shorts and a pair of shoes and that's about it. And you went out there and you just, um, you know, to quote you, um, you know, in this way, you'll find your true self through running. So I, I agree with you a hundred percent. I think the, the prevalence of technology in running, and that goes down to, uh, you know, even the shoes, right? The vapor flies. And we can talk a little bit about that. But the technology of running is it it seems so antithetical to so much of what, frankly, I think most people love about running, which is an escape from all of that. Um, so you know, it's yeah. a tough thing. You know, yeah. we 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 built this podcast around the idea of, you know, 90-minute conversations of being in your ear while you're on your long run. You know, is yeah. one could argue, is that the right way to look at it? Is it the wrong way? You know, sometimes it's good to have a company, but at the same time, you know. Is it better to pull everything out of your ears and just look around and, and just hear the world? Um, one of my favorite things to do when I travel is I land, I, you know, I get to my hotel, I throw on my running shoes and I run as far as I can through whatever city or town I'm in to go see it, you know, on my feet rather yeah. than, yeah. Uh, you know, out the window of a cab. I did that in uh, Be- Beijing, China in 2001 mm. at the World University Games. I got lost in the Chinese street <laughs> And, you know, the people were amazing. I had a Mohawk, a USA uniform on. Mm. <laughs> and it was, so, it was such a cool experience I never would have had if I was just plugged in and, you know, data-driven and, and you know, following directions and using yeah. GPS. I got, I got lost. You know, it, was, yeah. it was an amazing experience I'll never forget. Mm. But, you know, I think with technology, with data, you're getting feedback, right? And I guess using the Hendrix metaphor, Feedback can be horrible, ear-piercing garbage that is hard to suffer through, or it could be used in a way that's extremely beautiful and amplifies what you're doing, right? So Hendrix used feedback in that way. It totally changed the way 
of people will play guitar. Yeah. So how you use that feedback when you run, you know, you're not using it all the time. Sometimes you're using a wah-wah pedal. Sometimes you're, um, you know, you're turning all the effects off. And, um, you know, sometimes you're just singing. So there, there's a, a, a range and a balance. And, you know, it's, I guess, no different the way that technology is advancing running than, you know, people who you know, drove horse and buggy saying, like, those cars, you know, who, you're going to put people out of work. Who's going to shovel horse poop and who's going <laughs> to, you know, feed it? like, yeah, there's some, some things are going to get left behind. Yeah. Right. But what, what changed for the better for everyone? where you can transport medicine to someone miles away in moments, you know, or now with technology, you can inform them through information, like what to do for themselves through, um, you know, instruction to, to avoid situations or, you know, heal someone. Like most of what I listen to on podcasts are instructional in terms of, you know, Harvard lectures or things I could never afford to probably to do in the past mm. <laughs> or get into, um, you know, or, you know, high level philosophy that sometimes will take me five, six, ten times to listen to to really start to understand it. Um, so I'm trying to amplify my running in that way. So I'm using my running as a tool and at the same time understanding the meaning of why I'm doing that. You know what I mean? So I'm, I'm creating a positive feedback loop mm-hmm. instead of that negative feedback loop that creates that noise and that tension. So it, it strikes me that you're um, very philosophical about uh, mo- most things in your life. Uh, steeplechase is a, I, I reached out to a buddy of mine, Brandon Campbell, who ran steeplechase in college. And I, I told him you were coming on the podcast. I, I said anything I should ask him. And I had one question in my mind before he said it. And he said it, which was how do you get into steeplechase? It's such a, I mean, it's not, um, it's not even in high school, right? It's not a, it's not until you get to. No, it to, is. It, in, is it? in New York? It was. Okay. Yeah, so I, I grew up in New York and uh, we had it in our County. And so when I went to my first high school County meet, which is sort of like a regional meet before to qualify for stage, I saw my first people chase and I was like, what is that? Mm. Because running to me was very boring. Yeah. You know, especially if you're front running and you're doing well. And, um, you know, you're, you're pushing yourself on your own, but this, this sort of heightened it. But what also made it interesting was that people were around the water pit cheering for, pe- for people to fall, like <laughs> applauding when they did, right? Applauding when they did. I was like, ah, that's it. Because huh. it was the perfect little metaphor microcosm of life, yeah. you know? So um, what, what were you there running? Their... What were you there running that day? You said that this is the first time you saw steeplechase. Were were you just a five k runner at the time or middle distance? I was running the two mile, thirty two hundred okay. meters. Got it. Which was two hundred meters longer than the steeplechase. Yeah. Um, but it was not three dimensional like the steeplechase. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, this is something else. In, in in the race that I ran, um, I was favored to win, and I was leading, and there was I was one of the only sort of high level runners on my team. So it was just me. And that was four guys from this other team that were state champions very frequently. Mm. And a a really awesome coach. For whatever reason, they start talking trash and they're like, okay guys, when are we going to pass them? You know, who's going to go first? And just really talking trash, like Mm. New York style trash. I turned around and I said, bring it. And I just took off (laughs) and just hammered. I won and then made the, the state championship. And then um, I think I ended up winning the state championship the year that that happened. Mm. But I remember seeing the steeplechase go off and I was just thinking like, 
it's just so different. I don't think people in the steeplechase could even talk trash if they wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> and there was this kinship of taking on, if you were the guy on the team willing to take on the steeplechase, like, Ooh. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. <laughs> it, was usually, it was usually the expendable runner, right? And because I was, you know, fourth in a family of five kids, you know, I could ride my bike 12 miles away and my brother would get mad because they wouldn't let him off the street. Mm. They're letting you go to 7-Eleven. <laughs> you know, I was like, yeah, I'm expendable, man. <laughs> so I, it's all I wanted to do was try this thing. And the coach, my coach said, absolutely not. You're going to get hurt. Absolutely not. Which mm. made it even more appealing. Yeah. I think forbidden thing. So I'd go to practice and I'd jump over the chain link fence. It was probably like four feet high without touching it. And then I'd say, coach, nope and then i'd jump onto the fence and stand there in place coach because i was a skateboarder at the time and I, mm. at the time i was ollieing five to eight stairs and trying to do kickflips off of stairs and things like that so it wasn't foreign to me to exist in three-dimensional space like that yeah it, it really appealed to me and so it was forbidden um do you want me to tell you the story about how i did it for the first time in college because it was forbidden there too hell yeah do we have time? Of course. Okay. So let's let's preface this with the fact that, you know, recently there was a steeplechaser who got in a fight post-race at a major championship race. I think it was in Rio. Um, but he had gotten in multiple fist fights after his races like, and beaten up mascots and stuff at World <laughs> Championships. Like, the type of people that steeplechase are messed up. I think one high-level steeplechaser who had an Olympic medal stabbed somebody or something. Wow. These are just... Unique, yeah. Okay. Dig into it. You'll find some craziness, man. Okay. So, so it's sort of an edgy thing, and um, you know, it's it's a risky thing because if you're going to steeple chase, you're going to get hurt. There's just no way around it. It's just the nature of the event. So, my my college coach who recruited me in from New York in high school at Appalachian State University, he at the end of my freshman year, we begged so much, he let me try my first steeple chase, the last chance meet before summer started. So, if you got hurt, just to shut us up. And of course, I loved it, man. I was like, it's like getting in a fist fight, but you survive and you're missing a tooth and you're just smiling. I think this is amazing. <laughs> and so, so my sophomore year, I was like, okay, you know, we, I made it through cross country. I think I was like uh, second in the conference. And, you know, I was like, all right, people chase. No, you know, no people chase. No. So all through indoor, I did the hurdle drills and everything prepping for it, but he wouldn't let me do it. Mm. So the first outdoor meet was at a local university. Um, UNC Charlotte, and there was a, a flat 3K, a steeplechase, and a 5K. And so I snuck up to the meet table for check-in, and I said, my coach is really busy coaching the team. He accidentally put me in the flat 3K instead of the 3K steeplechase. Can you <laughs> transfer my name over? And they're like, sure, sure. You know, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll do that. What's your name? And so they did, and I'm warming up, and the coach sees me. And he's like, what are you doing? You don't have to race for another hour and a half. And I didn't say anything. And then one of the guys told him what I did. And he went, oh, he's furious. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. So he got mad at me and he refused to give me splits. He was like, I'm not giving you any splits. No one's talking to you. And as punishment, you're doing a flat 3K anyway after the race. Ooh. I was like, fine. All right. So I ran. I almost broke nine minutes in this case. Again, to prove a point. Like mm. with my brother. If I do it and I do it really well, he's going to have to say yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I ran like 9.04. He 
he didn't give me slips until like a lap to go when he realized like I was almost going to break the school record. Wow. He's like, oh, you're doing good. And I finished. And an hour later, I ran the school record for 3K. Wow. To put an exclamation point on it. And I was exhausted. Take that. But I knew if I didn't do, if I didn't do that, I wasn't going to get that opportunity. So typically, steeplechasers are the, you know, expendable athletes. The coaches don't mind if they get hurt. Mm. They're pretty good. They're not, you know, going to be NCAA champion in 5K. Okay. And so, but the guys who are really high level, multi-event guys who can do a good mile, good 5K, good 10K, make perfect steeplechasers. And so they're not often chosen by these coaches to do that because they're so valuable to the team. Mm. And so I think my willingness to be expendable helped. Is it um, statistically much higher uh, injury in steeplechase? Or is it just yeah, I mean, kind of I, I mean, higher? You take, take, for example, the Olympic Games in Athens, I for sure was ready to medal. And um, one little mistake where an athlete stutter stepped into the hurdle and mm. I didn't, I couldn't get my timing right because he paused in front of me. Mm. I hit my knee on the barrier and split my knee open with gushing, gushing blood. It was mm. horrible. But I mean, guys fall at the World Championships and Olympics all the time. Yeah. So if, if you're that high level, and there's that much risk. Can you imagine what it's like for a beginner? Yeah. Like, is it is that the is that more the type of injury? Because um, I, I I look at it and it's like yeah, you could twist an ankle, you could you know skin your knee, you could do those types of things. But the the um, the non repetitive side of it, it feels like you would almost like it would almost be counterintuitive. But maybe your body would stay fresher because you are leaping and jumping and you know doing all these different things no. versus just pedal to the metal no okay it's the exact opposite of pressure <laughs> mm. imagine how bad you feel the last lap of a 5k or mile yeah. not jumping anything and then yeah. add the fatigue of what it would be like to jump and con- constantly have a rhythm lose your momentum start again yeah. lose your momentum start again especially with a water pit yeah. so it, it it makes it 10 times harder in ways um and yeah. and i was, I was gonna say like not just with pacing but in terms of the event, you cannot zone out. You can't just go into a flow state mm-hmm. because you have to be constantly aware. You've got 12 to 18 people in a race yeah. all aiming for a four-foot spot at the same time. You have to be completely tuned in and aware and very, very present. So there's no drifting off to La La Land and just floating at a pace and not even realizing you're racing. You know, yeah. there's, It's very, very intense. And it's great. Mm. I told you I was an idiot. See, um, well, I say like Emma, Emma Coburn, who was in a she she's a, a medalist for the U.S. Uh, for the women's steeplechase, and there was a race where they accidentally left the barrier at the men's height, which is significantly ooh. higher. And so a few women fell. She got over it and was yelling and pointing like, "Hey, mm. like." She didn't didn't face her. She's sitting there talking to the officials like you're going to do something about this. Like you're like that's like you think everything is static and how it you know starts here, finish here, but in the steeple chase, half of the time the water pit isn't filled to the appropriate level mm. because some coaches think that if you land in water, it slows you down. They don't realize it's a cushion. You yeah. don't break your ankle, mm. which makes it even harder. Half of the time they don't have um, any flowers or uh, cardboard to block underneath the steeple barrier for the water pit. 
So you'll get reflections off the water and your depth perception will get way off. Oh, wow. So you just can't even see what you're doing, especially at night with lights on the water. Mm. There's so many things that could go wrong. And Steeplechase is pretty much the only event in track for running where the, start line, the starting line and the finish line are at different places at just about every track. Mm. Like there's literally, depending on where the water pit is, could be an inside water pit, could be yeah. an outside water pit, could be in the middle, could be the start of the turn, could be the end of the turn. You have no idea. Mm. Were, you, <laughs> were, you, were you ever limited in yeah, yeah. meets? Like, did, were there certain um, tracks and things that didn't couldn't accommodate steeplechase? Um, you mean like if they had they they didn't have a steeplechase or they? Yeah, like um, like is every NCAA competition? Uh, will they have a steeplechase or are there just certain tracks or facilities that you can't accommodate it on? Um, no, I mean, if you're going to run a high level meet for like NCAA or, you know, a championship race, they're always going to be at a track with a steeplechase, okay. but there's no guarantee it's going to be a, a quality steeplechase. Got it. Okay. Which means you, you make, you make a left turn out of lane one to go to the water pit and it's like five steps into mm. the barrier, which is basically 10 relays or wow. what it used to be. So pen relays, they had, you know, the track there was what the oldest tracking in the world, 200 and something years old, which is insane when you think about it. So they retrofit this track with a steeplechase barrier. They put it literally right on the stand, like less than a foot from the stand. And you run and you do a hard 90 degree turn into this barrier and then onto the straightaway. You've got thousands of people screaming at you and throwing stuff at you and spitting on you. And you're trying to navigate this hard left turn straight out of a full-on sprint and not fall on your face. And if you do, they want you to fall. Wow. <laughs> it's like, it was the coolest thing ever. I mean, it just sounds way more fun that, than the 5K. I got to be honest. It was, it was great. I think I, I, I still have the record at, at Penn Relays because I would get amped. I, I loved it. I wow. loved that energy and the the uncertainty of it. I, I think running is so very um, repetitive and monotonous that not knowing where the starting line is and not knowing if it's going to be an inside or outside water fit, or not knowing if they're going to know how to raise and lower the barriers properly or put them in the right yeah. spot. That's a little element of surprise. Wow. You know? Okay. So jumping back to that race, you were just pre-summer, you decided to bandit a, uh, a steeplechase race. Your coach was pissed until he realized that you were pretty damn good at it. What did that change everything for you? Was were you now a steeplechaser or did you, uh, when was the turning point where that became your focus? Well, I'll, I'll give is Coach Mike Curcio at Appalachian State, and I'll give him credit because I'm sure at some point he was going to let me do it to a higher degree. But I can't say because if I ran faster in those other events, and my sophomore year I won the steeplechase and the 5K, and I probably could have won the 1500 or 10K all in the same meet. And so it was valuable in terms of scoring points. And what happened was at the conference meet that soft, that same sophomore year, um, he was giving me splits, but because of our inexperience, he was giving me the splits at the barrier. Mm. So I turned my head to look, and I, I hit the barrier, and I fell to the ground hard. Mm. I, I just remember seeing a flash of light and coming up and just seeing feet coming towards me. Mm. And this, it was a hard track, too. I remember it was a really hard track. I came up, and I, like, I hit my head hard on the track. And I got up. And I was ahead by so much, I still won the race. But my knee had swelled up like the size of a grapefruit. Mm. And the trainer had to come over and wrap it really tight to get the fluid out. And I remember sitting in the hotel room and he's like, we need you to run the 5K. And I was like, what? Yeah, we need you to run the 5K. So I understood why he was hesitant. 
to, you know what I mean, what a steeplechase. But this is this is how you know you're a steeplechaser or an ultra runner or a cyclocross person. Because you do it and you fall and you're just ready to do it again like that. Yeah. You know, there's really no hesitation. So I just knew that's what I was meant to do. Wow. And even though I may have been a better 10K runner based off of my debut 10K and better at some other things, it didn't interest me, so I never would have taken my ability to that level mm. because the steeplechase was interesting for me. So I did want to put time in there. I did go through the motions of training and got to a certain level of fitness because it did engage me on that level. And most runners in high school or college only make it so far because there's always something that will get in the way. You know, you, you start failing a class and you got to get more dialed in your academics. Your girlfriend, you get distracted because on a new job, you move to a different side of the country whatever it is, or for the most part, people care, but they get injured and they find reasons not to continue on. But when you find that one event or that thing that you're really passionate about, you're willing to take it as far as need to be to really see it through because it's yeah. just kind of, I, I guess if you believe in string theory <laughs> and the string resonates, you're resonating at a certain frequency and there's certain things that just hone in on that and harmonize, you know? And everyone, you, you can't put your finger on that. I mean, I'd like to say there's an algorithm that picks wine, like they say from a girl from MIT, but does it really, you know? Mm. Is there an algorithm that say, you'd be great for five, you'd be great for super mm. That That's when you're going to make the big bucks, man. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, so you, you, speaking of taking it to a, a, a new level, so you certainly did that to Olympics. Um, what, you, you were Beijing and... What were the two? Was it Athens, Beijing? I got my years mixed up. Uh, I ran in Athens in 04 and then again in Beijing. So I really worked my tail off to get another shot since I fell in um, in Athens. And really, there's a lot of things I can blame the fall on. I really am a front runner. I like to be up front. And one of the high-level coaches who coached someone to Olympic medal there said, we've seen your workouts. You are ready to medal. Mm. Please don't take the lead in the prelim because we don't want you to waste any energy for the final. But they didn't understand the steeplechase. They didn't understand yeah. my, my timing and how things work. So if I was in the lead like I normally am and people weren't messing about in front of me, I would have made it through the final and probably at least got close to a medal, if not at least had a great shot at it. So I had four years to prove that to myself and really get another shot. Got it. And this time at the Olympic trials in Eugene, I went from the gun, took off, and I never looked back. And I did the same thing in the Olympic prelim in Beijing. And um, I ran a personal best in Beijing, and I had plenty of gas left in the tank, and I knew it was going to be an awesome final. And I was talking to the press like this, and my chest started to hurt really bad. I thought I was, like, having a heart attack or something. So I had to pause the interview. I walked over to the team doctor, and they said I was having an asthma attack. And I said, I don't have asthma. Whoa. And that's when they just said, look, you're in Beijing. Like, it's just. Everyone has asthma here. The air quality, I don't know what was in the air that triggered me. Yeah. It could have been factories nearby. It could have been anything. But um, I had one day to recover and then run in the final. Wow. And so that's where I really worked on mind over matter because I wasn't allowed to take medication. I said, what do I do? And they said, well, you're just going to have to have an asthma attack. I said, what if I take <laughs> some medication? There's, there's other people here who take asthma medication. They said, yes, but they got pre-approved with a therapeutic use exemption. I said, I'm having an asthma attack. You just diagnosed me. Yeah. And he said, yeah, but you didn't have a TUE. I said, I'm having an asthma attack. Wow. And so people question why athletes oftentimes have 
pre-diagnosed asthma. Yeah. Because a lot of times it's just in case. Like I literally could have died there and it was, they, they put me in that position was, which was horrible if you think about that. Give away your dream that you've been working on for 15 to 20 years, right? Uh, by taking asthma medications or potentially die by not taking it. <laughs> yeah. Which one are you going to choose, you know? So right. I had took the risk. I'm like, I'll sit here. You guys watch me close, you know? And wow. I had one day to recover and run in the final. And I got, because I couldn't take medication, I got about two laps in again and it hit. Yeah. And um, I said, you know, I'm not going out like this. So I didn't just fade to the back. I took the lead with like three laps to go. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, there's a Sports Illustrated picture where you can see my face, and that's what a runner running all out having an asthma attack looks like. It's pretty disturbing. It's gruesome. I just didn't want to give it up. I worked, I worked so hard for eight years. You know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, uh, I'm sure we can find something on that. We'll include it in the show notes. So was it um, – I mean, that's a that's – how much longer did you continue running at that level in the steeplechase? Was that the end of it? Was it like – where was your head at? I mean, you were you disenfranchised? Were you, um, I mean, where was your head at coming off of that? You had just busted your ass. You were there. You can see the brass ring. You know, you can reach out and touch that metal. Um, and it, in some ways, you know, it's just kind of ripped from you because of, you know, whatever bureaucracy or uh, silly decisions that seem to plague um, amateur athletics. The, the funny thing is I ended up getting disinterested in this people's case. I started to like get a little bored with it. Mm. <laughs> so um, my friends were making amazing amounts of money running the marathon. And I transferred to a new sponsor who wanted me specifically to step off the track and do more 5K, 10K, and eventually half marathon and marathon. Okay. So that was the goal. Um, Dr. Jack Daniels, who was working with me to get down to my 5K PR, I I'd gotten down to 1311 and I thought I could probably get down to close to 13, if not under. So we were doing the math of what I should be able to run with the workouts I was doing with him and what he could, you know, sort of predict out. And we figured I could go probably 207 on a great day. I was like planning out, okay, two, three years down the line, maybe, maybe less. That's what I want to aim for. So I started doing five Ks and 10 Ks more on the track so that I could scale up towards, um, you know, the half marathon and the marathon. And, um, it, it was interesting at the time. I, I enjoyed it, you know, but it was just different. And I was surprised and encouraged because I did find out that I was a better 5K runner and 10K runner. Mm. So, so in my debut 10K in 2006, it was the first time I ever ran a 10K. And, it was, you know, first time I ran it as a pro, because I never did it in college. I just refused to do it. It's like 26 laps on the package is ridiculous, you know, or whatever it was. So they convinced me to try, and I, it would have been the fastest ever debut by Americans for 10K, but Ellen Webb had sort of gotten me by a couple of seconds in the race, wow. and I, I just didn't know what I was doing. I'd never yeah. gone that distance before, and I felt great when I finished, like I could do it again. Hmm. And I was sort of sad in a way. I was like, I threw away a lot of potential <laughs> in this event. Simply <laughs> <laughs> because I had a Sorry, love affair that. with the steeplechase. Yeah, that day, or you had thrown away potential in your career? Both, yeah. both. Because yeah. I didn't, I didn't go out. There was a pace setter who took um, Alan Webb and Jason Rippenheim out on mm-hmm. on a, a big PR pace, and because I was just 
this guy, you know, Sam, slowly steeplechaser, I didn't have any anticipation of what I was going to be able to do. Yeah. The only reason I did it, my coach, George Watts, University of Tennessee, who coached me post-collegiately, he said, um, and you want to talk work ethic and a guy who could really push to that high level like we were talking before, Todd Williams is one of those guys at University of Tennessee, so he was the local legend. And Todd's event was 10K. And George said, Todd says you can't do 10K, you're not doing it because you're a coward. And, you know, <laughs> wow. I'm sure Todd didn't say that, but George sure. said it because he knew it would, you know, light me up. And I was like, well, what's your PR? <laughs> that was the first thing I said. And then he told me, so I kind of was roughly aiming for that, but his PR was like 2730. Mm. So I ended up running like 2737, but I didn't go with the leaders. I trained to that level. They ended yeah. up running 2733 or 34 to win. I should have won the race. Um, I just didn't know what I was doing. Mm. But it, it did open up a lot for me to realize, like, oh, I can be a half marathon runner. I can be, wow. um, you know, a, a marathoner. Yeah. I just, you know, when you see guys like Meb Kaplevsky, or people are just really, really born to do this, it's very intimidating, and you just don't, you can't relate. The same way that we were joking about the, doing a mile on the treadmill versus a mile on the track. Yeah. You just can't connect those dots to think that you're that guy. Mm, that's interesting. You know? and, and, I, and I think a lot of times people, when I speak about what I've done and what I'm doing, um, or when I've talked in interviews in the past, could say that, Hey, you know, this guy's kind of braggadocious or this or that, but it's, it's self-talk. It's, again, I, I mm. revert back to, you know, studying psychology that you have to inflate yourself to think that you can do those things. Otherwise you'll never do them. And, you know, people talk about trait narcissism, where you've got, you know, certain presidents at the extreme ends that they didn't never do any wrong or whatever, right? But there are these tiers of narcissism that are effective and functional. And let's say like Michael Jordan is one example of that, to think that he could be the greatest basketball player of all time. Now, a lot of people don't know that he got cut from uh, UNC Chapel Hill, I think, yeah. on the basketball team at one point. So how do you go from being cut from the team to thinking that you're the greatest basketball player of all time and reaching that? Like, what goes on in your mind? Yeah. Right. And so that that's what happened there with George sort of pressing that button for me. Um, but I still even even now it's just hard to relate to that. So I, I think one of the reasons I dabble in the treadmill or I I won't I am not averse to doing a local five K with twenty people in it. Right. And people are like, Are you trying to put on a show? And like, no, 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 no. Like I want them to see me at the starting line, watch me warm up, see what I do, hear me breathing. If it's an out and back, see me go out, see me come back, talk to me afterwards, have a donut, and realize that there's no mystery behind the curtain. Yeah. It's just time and pressure, like uh, Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's amazing to think so of how many how many careers have maybe circled the drain of that imposter syndrome slash fear of failure slash you know the the opposite of what you're describing in terms of that narcissism that that total. 100% self-belief that is required, you know, in that yeah. 0.001% of the best. Um, and then so many of us are just kind of like, you know, um, you know, two inches from victory, you sort of start doubting yourself and give it up. Yeah. So I, I couldn't even start with the, I think, um, the greatest guy to win the race. I had to start from let's just see how far you go before you faint <laughs> from that. But like the, like, you know, fail, but fail up, you know? Yeah. And so I, as we would drive to meet in high school, I was so sort of meek and quiet. I would sit in the back of the bus by myself the whole way there. Yeah. 
and would focus and get down and try to self-talk myself up to try to run this race. And what yeah. really helped along the way is I went from Anthony, from a jiggity, can't say my name, to Sam. The yeah. kids started calling me Sam. And so I started to put pieces together to create Sam into this person mm. who could be that guy who'd say, yeah, I'm going to win this thing. Yeah, I'm yeah. excited. You know, I'm going to do that. And it's like, cause, because for me, I, I couldn't, like a Conor McGregor, absorb that persona full on and yeah. think you're the greatest thing ever. And, you know, those guys will go on to be, you know, worth hundreds of millions of dollars and that kind of thing. Those things didn't appeal to me because of, I guess, my life experience and philosophical background. So I wanted to separate the two. Yeah. You know, like still be grounded in who I was, the kid who would sit with the kids at lunch class that didn't have anyone to sit with. You right. know? Yeah. And, I was, and I'll never forget that too. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I was going to bring up the, the whole MMA. It, it, you, you sort of, again, you're, you have such a, a different approach to a lot of these things and it feels like you've, you've brought in some of the, um, the showmanship and bravado of combat sports into running, you know, sort of creating fam and, um, you know, this kind of, uh, alter ego to, uh, to help drive you into success. Yeah. Like running wasn't necessarily interesting because, you know, the first people I was introduced to had short shorts on, high knee socks, free ride strips, and it didn't seem cool. <laughs> so you my, just... my heroes were Bruce Lee, Evil Knievel, mm. Mike Tyson. And so, you know, not consciously, I just sort of, took from each of those and, and the sequel chase was kind of a nice little, um, platform to execute in that way. Yeah. Well, I mean, it certainly worked for you. You know, you're the, the names when I was doing some research and some of the names that you've just dropped, I mean, you are certainly mentioned among the greats, um, you know, certainly, um, American runners. Um, you mentioned Meb a couple minutes ago. Did you ever, would you have, did you race Meb ever? You would have, right? You were in the same. Yeah, I did. Um, Meb was that guy that brought you back down to earth, you know, <laughs> two quick, two quick examples. Okay. So, um, I was injured for a year in 2003. I, I won the U S championship in O2 and the last water pit, I tore my peroneal tendon and I had almost five, six months of just pool running and biking and lifting weights. We couldn't figure out what it was and it just lingered and lingered and lingered. Um, and so, you know, I was out and, um, you know, the I lost my train of thought. I was, I was going to talk about the Meb. Oh, okay, yeah. So yeah, so I I um, was about to get my contract cut because they're like, you're not performing, you're not racing. So I was down to my last few bucks, and I was open about it at the time. I think people thought I was exaggerating the fact, but I was literally living in a um, dorm room in Northern Arizona University before mm. it was the big you know running school, and I had nothing but a flat sheet, not even a fitted sheet on a bed. And a pillowcase stuffed with my clothes. <laughs> I lived like that for a month and would eat out of the vending machine with whatever remaining money I had because I still had to pay rent at home. I wasn't getting XX financial support. Wow. And, you know, with my family, it's like, this is my dream. I'm not going to ask them to fund my pipe dream. You know what I mean? Hmm. Plus, there was this thing, too, where I wanted to make it on my own to prove that, you know, if, if you have, like I said, those things where people just sort of help you get it done without earning it that way, it doesn't have the same meaning. So I was really trying to like find out if this is what I wanted to do and if, if I had what it took. So I get in amazing shape. I get invited to the US AK Championship in Central Park. So it was one of the longer races I ever did for the first time. And I knew I was in amazing shape. And I said, okay, these guys are more talented than me, have more experience. So what I'm going to do at 5K, I'm going to use you know, the point of the race where everyone's going to want to back off. And I don't care how bad I feel, I'm just going to attack as hard as I can and just bluff it and just go and break away. 
and I'm just going to do like, you know, like I said, you just run until you just can't do it anymore. That, that reckless abandon. And I did that. And I broke one guy. I broke the next guy. I broke the next guy. And then here's Nev just sitting there, like mm. nose breathing, like looking amazing. And he kind of looks at me like, you done? And he just takes <laughs> off. <laughs> oh, oh. And he, he, he beats me. But I think he ran like the, the course record, you know, the championship record. And so my time would have been close to that, to what I ran. And I said, whoa. Wow. Um, so I kind of kind of helped him in a way, but he helped you know me push higher to the level. But I still didn't see myself as that guy yeah. versus Meb. And then you fast forward to, I think, about 2009 or 2010. I had, I'd run my fastest PR 5K. I just raced in Europe. So I was one of the fastest American runners that year for 5K and was doing amazing things. And so I'm going to cash in at a prize money race. There's a big seven mile U.S. championship. And again, seven miles is way higher up, you know, the ladder than people chase their 5K. But, yep. you know, again, I had that confidence coming in fit. And um, I was for sure, you know, slated to be the winner. First place was $12,000 or a new used car. I was like, I'm getting that new used car now. I want a Lincoln Town car, whatever it was. <laughs> <laughs> Night of the race, I'm all excited. And we're growing out space, and he shows up. Med. He came out of the radar. He had been gone for a year because he fractured his hip at the Olympic Trials Marathon. Mm -hmm. He was completely off the radar. Nobody thought he was going to be back to racing for a long time. So his opener race, coming back for his comeback, is this. I was like, damn. And he had already won it four or five times in a row. This was his specialty. I was like, oh my God, how am I going to beat this guy? So I heard Tony Rebus, who was an announcer for the event, talking to a group of guys about in the past there was a, a specific Kenyan runner who this guy ran with reckless abandon he went you know like you know five minutes straight uphill for this first mile is straight uphill the second mile is all almost downhill and then it's sort of up and down the rest of the course mm. and the Kenyan runners took off they were in like 420 418 or something like that broke away and they just kind of let him go like I'm going to do that it's the only way I'm going to beat Neb and so we you know all together up the hill we reached the mile mark at the top, and I just took off, man. And I ran a 4.09 second mile, mm. right? I can't say I ran a 4.09 second mile because I carried us all the way to about two feet before the mile mark, and then Med passes me and then gets the credit for the 4.09. Oh, we broke everybody by like 30 seconds, right? And he looks at me again like, are you done? <laughs> and he takes <laughs> off after a 4.09 mile. Wow. I was like, oh, my God. You know, next wow. level. Wow. And so we finished the race. And of course, I'm giving him hugs and shaking his hand. I was just kind of in awe, you know. Yep. And and the fact that I laid everything out the same way that I did those first few races as a kid. And I was like, man, I gave everything I had in the tank for this guy. He still beat me by like 30 seconds. And I, and I said, what are you doing next? Like, what are you racing? What are you training for this year? And he said the New York Marathon. And I never forget. I said, Ned, you're going to win. 100%. He said, what do you mean? I was like, Mev, dude, you know how fit I am right now? And what I just did to you? <laughs> and he laughed at me. Wow. You know? And he did. He went on and won the New York Marathon. So that's a guy that's like, just to rub shoulders with someone like that and, and to cross paths yeah. is mind-blowing for me as a runner. Because my this was the only year that my high school coach didn't volunteer for the New York Marathon. He would work the elite tent and he would tell me stories of kids that were, you know, runners who would come through when they'd finish. And I'll never forget, in grade, I broke my first five-minute mile and I ran like 455 
and I was really just laying down on the floor and felt like I wanted to puke like you, like you do. And I said, coach, when the marathoners run 26.2, what do they average per mile? And he said like 450 or under, and I just couldn't wrap my head around that. (laughs) Like is that in that place at that time? Yeah. So to think that, you know, I was in a race like that with Meb and, and, um, someone who can win Boston Marathon, win New York Marathon, and it's like the height of those people just seems so surreal and not achievable. Yeah. And so that's why I love coaching at a grassroots sort of high school level. Yeah. By the way, it looks like you, you finished second overall with a 32.55 final time on Athlings. You found it already? Oh I my did. God. <laughs> it's right there for you. Yeah, what, did second he, what, did he, what, did, what did he run? Uh, he ran, let's see. He ran uh, 32.25. Wow. Yeah, yeah. 30 seconds. Yeah. Right? And and the crazy thing was like second place was a goose egg, man. I got like nothing. <laughs> he got twelve grand. And then he got his awesome trumpet because the Bix was named after Big Cedarbaum, amazing jazz player. But he did let me take his trumpet and play like Saints Come Marching In or something at the oh, cool. post race party. It was pretty fun. Man. Yeah, that's cool. And that's the thing, it's like running really is so different than any sport where um you all suffer the same way. So it really is this sort of um kind of brotherhood, sisterhood of, of um, achievement. Yeah. You know, when you see someone do well, you're happy for them. Yeah. Or, or at least I am. I don't know. I just think, you know. So let me take a step back. So you described your life at NAU up in Northern Arizona and Flagstaff. You're basically on a mattress and a sheet. This is after two Olympics. That right? was, that was 2003 going into 2004. So it was before before okay. I made my first Olympic team. Uh, okay, yeah. okay, got it, got it. So this, that's, this that's was the, okay. This was you staring up. So at you can, the, yeah, you can you can look up those results too for the USAK championships and figure out which year it is because I'm getting so old. They all bleed together. Yeah, I hear. And you'll see where I got a uh, second to Meb in one of those, and he he did amazing. This is the cool thing about talking to you. You can verify. All yeah, <laughs> you can verify. <laughs> So, wait, but yeah, I mean, uh, go ahead. Well, I mean, I was just really, I mean, you know, here you are. This is something that, you know, I mean, just the whole amateur athletics discussion and just keeping yourself, you know, you're here, you are trying to compete. You're a machine. You're this finely tuned American machine that requires nothing but the best nutrition and you're eating out of a vending machine. And, um, you know, there's, there's kind of like nobody there to, to help you. Um, my that. sister sent me a care package. She sent me some <laughs> mac and cheese, some ramen noodles, and pop tarts. Oh, and man. I lived off those. I made. I stretched those pop tarts out, man. Yeah. But yeah, it got to the point where I couldn't even afford the shuttle to go down to the airport because it's about a three and a half hour drive from Flagstaff down there. Yeah. So I paid the cheaper fee for the Greyhound, and I couldn't pay for the hotel that night. I had some money, but I was going to need it for pocket money going into. Um, like I said, I wasn't going to tap my parents and ask them to pay for this pipe dream. Not that they were necessarily supportive to do that anyway, but you know, they were obviously supportive and would have done what I needed. But this is one of those things where it's like, I'm not going to cost them money for something yeah. I'm not sure about, you know? So, um, I, I, I got down there and, um, I ended up because my flight was like a 9am flight. I slept on the concrete floor mm-hmm. of the terminal. So I'm going to forget looking up. And, and it, I had to like sleep on the floor under those hard, you know, metal kind of legs of the seat because I didn't want the guys asking me to see me and kick me out. 
And I looked up and the mural in there is just Phoenix rising <laughs> because it's Phoenix, you know? Yep. And I just remember staring at that like, yep, yep. And <laughs> I was eating my last Pop-Tart. <laughs> wow. And I couldn't wait to get fly in and get to the Meat Hotel in New York because I knew they had like the best bagels in the city and like all the best stuff. And I was like, yeah, man. But I, I all my friends were in New York. I had friends going to Hunter College, going to film school there. And so when I landed, it was like coming home. And it really was like sort of um, rising from the ashes of, of this injury and going through, I mean, whether you, whether you read Joseph Campbell or, you know, any, any archetype of what the human experience is like, like any, anyone who plays a hero or overcomes something has to go sort of into this dark forest of the unknown mm. and, and, and leave a lot of things behind and discover for themselves. So my, my favorite, one of my favorite people, when I, especially when I was younger, was Jean-Michel Basquiat. And he grew up in a middle-class home in Brooklyn, and his father was an accountant. So Jean-Michel left and was homeless in Washington Square Park, living in a box in Washington Square Park. Mm. You know? And now his paintings, that so he's passed away, he passed away when he was 27. Yeah. His paintings sell for $100 million for one painting. Think about that. That's insane. Yeah. Think about your highest-paid athlete, what he makes in a year. Jean's paintings, one of them will sell for what they're most high state athlete will get in a year. Wow. And he lived in a box in Washington Square Park, but he had to go into that sort of dark unknown and surf the city and absorb uh, the culture and, and human experience, you know? I mean, sometimes you have to get out of that. Yeah. So that's what I was doing um, on, a running, on a running level. And a lot of people didn't understand it. You know, they're like, what are you talking about, man? Like, why, why don't you just stay home and run, you know, use the training room at Tennessee? I was like, no, I knew high altitude was the only way I was going to race against a guy like Nev who gives amount of weight, you know? Yeah. I knew that um, if I was committed all the way and if I could make it through this 30-day stay, that I wasn't going to back off at that jumping off point at 5 p.m. in the race because I did it for 30 days. <laughs> I'd, I'd run up to Taco Bell after a workout because I didn't have a car and, and walk through the drive through if I got home late and they just refused to serve me because I said, you can't come in here without a car. you got to... Like, just give me a taco. Like, I have money not to sell you a taco. <laughs> You're like, get out of here, you weirdo. Uh, yeah, because the, the, the support system in the town wasn't quite um, yeah. structured like it is now. And eventually, the subsequent years, I could stay at the Halsey Training Center and have um, a better setup. But I put every dime I had into performance. Mm. There, I didn't spend it on frivolous to the highest degree. Yeah. So that is how a guy like me can meet somewhat and make it up to a guy like Meb or these world leader guys. You know? Yeah. Well, and everyone, you, everyone can. If yeah. you had just won that Dan Lincoln at Bix, you would have been able to go to Taco Bell. <laughs> I would have kept that car forever too, man. I would have put like, you know, ground effects on it, <laughs> painted it with <laughs> purple or something. Uh, the fam. <laughs> The chain link uh, steering wheel, right? Yeah. <laughs> so fast, fast forward. You you come off of all of that. So the way that, um, again, as I as I hinted at the at the top of the show here, um, I saw you. You certainly grabbed everybody's attention, not only at the running event, but uh, I mean, I saw everybody. Everybody that that was there was crowded around the treadmill and posting um, you uh, breaking the four minutes on a treadmill. Um, couple things on that one. So, I, do you always run it at an incline? Is it like a one point five percent incline? Um, so there's arguments on if you want an equivalent mile to the effort outside mm. 
because you want to have a 1% incline. Got it. Um, some will argue more, some will argue less, but there's not an exact science on it. Um, so in that scenario, I started with one and a half. And when it gets like unbearable, one of the reasons I'll do that is if I bring it a half a percent down, yeah. it makes you think you're getting a break when you're not. Sure. Because you can't control the pace. You're not in control at all. You can't, you can't speed up. There's this consistency to it that yeah. it feels very claustrophobic. And I have high level athletes who run amazing, but they just can't run on the treadmill mm-hmm. and they just can't not be in control. They get, they panic. Yeah. There was a way to control that panic, keep that 1% incline and, um, you know, manage my fear. Interesting. So there's an art to it in that way. Yeah. Mm. So it's like a relief valve in a way. Yeah. I don't want to give an armor secrets out, <laughs> but yeah, it, it does help because again, it's psychological. It's, that's not physical. You can't quantify that. Right. Huh. Yeah. So, so why would you start harder than you need to? That's stupid. You're going to get more tired. Right. My, my friends would be like, don't start at my wife. Says, don't start at one and a half. You may not make it to the finish. Just start at 1%. I'm like, no, I, I need to, you know, because I, I knew it would just, just understanding my psychology and, and what that does, you know, someone who's, well, here's an example. I have a friend who I used to race against who on occasion would beat me in high school. And, um, this one really high level meet, I just couldn't afford to lose to him to make the state championship. He said he was warming up that day and he had a side stitch and his coach said, Jay, come here. And Hey, what's wrong? How did coach have a side stitch? So his coach said, all right, took a quarter out of his pocket. He put it in the ice bucket for like a minute, took it out, and then taped it to a side stitch with that side stitch. He goes, you're good. Take off. He said he warmed up, and the side stitch was gone, and he raced amazing. And he asked his coach, like, how did you know to do that? He said, I made it up on the spot, Jay. Come on. You <laughs> made it up on the spot. That's awesome. like, whoa, man. So that's not science, man. That's that placebo effect that people can't really quantify what yeah. is that what is that man that's like seeing the code of the matrix a little bit like, yeah. what? you talk to people who really are hyper smart and it sounds like you're one of them from what i've heard before so it's fun talking to you like they'll say like yeah we, we may be in a simulation right now it's highly likely statistically that's possible <laughs> like what you know and if you if you look at i like to read you know buddhist philosophy and, and ancient buddhist texts well they'll say the same thing in a different way or say all life and reality is illusion, illusory, right? It's a different way of saying, um, you know, um, matrix or manufactured. It's it's a different way to explain it. But if you, if you think in terms of that way, you really dig down in the nitty gritty of how you got here. You know, those very smart people, they don't, they say, yeah, maybe a simulation. But they won't answer any questions past that. You say, okay, what is the simulation in? Well, another simulation. And then what is that simulation in? Well, another simulation. <laughs> you know what I mean? You can't go beyond a certain point. And if you start reading Nagarjuna or some of these ancient, um, you know, thought experiment philosophers, your mind will just really explode. But it's like, what do you do when you read those sort of things and you're a runner? You try to poke through the veil a little bit, you know, to that, I don't know the matrix code typing. (laughs) And and I found out that really and truly behind the scenes that, you know, some of the Nike runners were getting hypnotized that I was racing against. I found that out. Huh. They were really getting hypnotized. I don't think they've ever talked about that publicly. That's interesting. But I I know for certain too, because I raced a couple of them 
And as they're warming up, this guy comes out in his creepy singing voice. He's like, Mockingbird, monarch butterfly. No, <laughs> come on, really? Oh, these trigger we're, words. And we're, I was we're like, going what deep are you now. Doing? All right, we're going deep. What's going on here, man? <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, man, these guys are taking it to the next level here. I thought I was being smart, you know, knowing, you know, because I would grow a beard, a really long beard to kind of see the transformation over time of the, the fitness I put in. I can see it, you know, or some people like to look at their training log and use tools like, you know, Strava or Ethics and different things to see the races they've done, see the miles they put in. There's no denying you are fit, you know. So there's things that you can do. You're, you're, you're reaffirming, self-affirming and, and, and building that confidence. But that's something else to really trigger the subconscious mind in a way where, and you find out they did that to Mike Tyson. They hypnotized him all the time. Mm. That you're just unbeatable war machine. You're built for this. No one can ever stop. Like they programmed that guy. Sure. You're like, wow. At what, at what cost? So yeah. I, I like knowing this stuff, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it, it, I guess sports psychology, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the narcissism and things like that. I mean, there's a, it, it's not enough to just be the physical or just the mental. I mean, the, to, to be the man, the woman, the, the top person, you have to have so, so many things clicking all together. Um, and frankly, you know, generally speaking, through a pretty short window of time, you know, the best of the best are, are typically only that way for four years, you know, maybe tops. Yeah. But, um, see, but here's the thing. If you ask Mike why he started boxing, it's because he was getting beat up. Yeah. He was a little shrimpy guy. Yeah. And the early boxing coaches said not to work with him because he didn't have the build yeah. of a heavyweight champion. He was a waste of time. Yeah. And well, he was a tiny, tiny heavyweight champion too. I mean, he was, he, yeah. We forget how small he was relative to um, to the rest of the fighters of the time. So if you're talking tools and genetics, and then you're talking, you know, in, in terms of how he was relative to the people his age and he was getting beat up, he wouldn't show any indicators of being something great at right. all, yeah. right? And then here's someone who comes along and changes his mind, yeah. and then his mind triggers everything else. Right. So I think I think that's why, you know, I, I've, I've been so philosophical. I've had... Friends passed away at a very young age, at 21, and the experiences I had with those individuals beforehand seemed very serendipitous and life-changing in themselves. And then those were the jumping-off point for me to say, okay, what's going on here? You know, what am I doing here? And if I am here and I'm stuck here with other people and I have this skill that's unique, how can I use it in a way to self-inform and inform others in a unique way? And then that manifests into a brand, mm. you know? Yeah. And, and, and to the degree, too, that we're not, I don't want to be some corporate mega giant and just have, you know, people making stuff in mass at my expense. You know, yeah. I, I, it's the new thing now to be very responsible and ethical with your brands and those sort of things. But from the, from the get-go, that's what we wanted to be. We don't want to be some gigantic brand. So we literally hand-make custom singlets where people come to the website and design their own singlet and customize who they are in the product. And in a way where it's very sustainable and we've been doing it 11 years now. Yeah, it's great. You know? So so I'm trying to integrate even my philosophy into what I do business-wise, not just athletically. Yeah, that's and awesome. I can't help, help but do that. But it's no surprise a guy like Mike Tyson was a very high-level influence on me as an athlete because of that intangible thing. Yeah. You know, that, that, I don't know if intangible is a word that you just can't really define or, or measure how a guy like that 
does what he does. And I don't know that your listeners are necessarily performance-based, but I'm talking in terms of effort to find out like what what you can do on your highest end because the feeling you get when you finish a cyclocross race or you know you, you rip your bicep in a judo match, <laughs> how far did you go to rip your bicep? You know, no comment. Joy, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no comment on that one. But, yeah, so so it's just about really you know reckless abandon and, and pushing yourself to the point where you know sometimes your bicep will get ripped, sometimes you'll you'll tear something, but you'll do the work to get back in there and explore. Yeah, it was funny. Yeah. I was I was reading <clears throat> the original quote that I read earlier, and the person that came to my mind was Steve Prefontaine, right? So um, the ultimate front runner. And then I came across a tweet that you tweeted January 25th. Uh, Today is Steve Prefontaine's birthday. On this day every year, running an all-out two miles should be government mandated. I got mine in. Let's go. I was like, oh, that's so perfect. (laughs) Well, my friends call me the poor man's free. (laughs) There you go. There you go. Like, I wasn't some high school 850 guy or... You know, I was way be, way behind that, and I wasn't running like world fastest time, like he was. But I went beyond what he did, and I, I feel like with less. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, I mean, you certainly happen yeah. to you. You certainly have the same philosophy of of putting it all out there and, and front running, and and um, uh, you know, I I I followed him much later in life. I wasn't uh, um privy to him i think when he was running in the olympics and stuff i was a pretty young kid at the time but uh um certainly in in watching some of the movies and reading some of his his stuff and and just the i think the frustration in some ways that his coaches had with him in in terms of just they just could not slow that guy down you know and so in some cases it worked for him in some cases yeah. it worked against him but 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 at the end of the day it was always on his terms were certain people it just feels right to do that. I didn't know who he was until like my first or second year of college, whenever that movie came out, I'd never heard of him. I didn't know anything about him. And I had already run that way all through high school. And when that movie came out and then we'd go do workouts, the kids would say, you look down the track 200 meters to go at the finish line. Like three does. And I was like, I do like, Mm. there's this, there's this sort of thing that, and it's just sort of, in you that you can't help but run that way. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, and I think some of us have that and we deny it, you know, because what, what do you have to lose? There's too much to lose to live yeah. that way. And there's a guy that's like willing to lose it all because of what it does for him to run that way. And then we'll, let's get into the psychology of it again my band that I'm going to start with some friends is called the sit and kicks. <laughs> we start a rock band called the sit and kicks. And most people will sit and kick in a race, right? Um, so the complete opposite of Prefontaine. And, and you know, a championship race, you're told you sit in the back or if you're trying to get a personal base, uh, best, you want to be in a, a race with people that are faster than you and they sort of drag you along and then, you, you know, you kick in for a personal best so they've helped you along the way. But Prefontaine and myself and many others have personal bets where we led the whole way. How do you explain yeah. that, right? And so we've tapped into this thing where we understand that there, those people there are completely psychological. They don't have to be there. You're so dependent on this outside sort of stimulus to tell you you can do something or you should do something. And when you flip that switch inside, and I don't know how it gets flipped, 
when a switch is flipped and you realize that I've, I've been to workouts at like nine o'clock at night in Manhattan on the Lower East Side on a track and run some ridiculous workouts, mm. you know, no one's ever going to see it. And I just didn't need anybody there. Just so tuned into that thing. And when you flip that switch, it's game on. You don't need anyone anymore. Mm. You just, you can do it on your own and you can go train on your own in Arizona or New York City or wherever that is. Mm. It, it flips everything on its head. And I don't think anyone's really explored that to that degree because everyone wants that sit and kick win and the safe route. But you do have to like have that reckless abandon to be willing to lose a lot in order to find that switch and then flick it on. And yep. it's not easy to switch on. Like it's kind of like really hard to say like one of those switches that's stuck and you're like, I gotta, how am I going to get this? You know, it's a little greasy. <laughs> you have to just kick it with your foot and it clicks on. Yeah. And you go from like running on, um, you know, hydroelectric power of a creek to all of a sudden you're on nuclear power. You know, <laughs> it's a, it's, <laughs> a, this, it's yeah. a trait I've heard of a lot of, um, people with like near death experiences end up with where, um, it's a pain threshold that a lot of people just don't get anywhere near. And then when, um, with a near, not necessarily near death, but like extreme, extreme pain, um, uh, experience in their life, then they know where that limit is in their, some people, not all obviously, um, but are, are then very willing and, and in some way chase that. So it's interesting. I wonder if it's something that you were just born with, um, that ability to get very, very close to that edge. And again, going back to your fifth grade experience of actually, you know, pushing yourself through that edge, um, before you were, um, physically ready. So I, I think, you know, philosophically, I think it's something that we all wish we had and we all, maybe think that we can when, you know, when push comes to shove, push through that. But I think you're in a very limited, um, class of people that, that can actually find it and get there. Cause I, I mean, I, I'll be honest. I don't think that I can do that. No, I mean, everyone has it and you have to foster it, but you know, I, I'm always in you know, the, the podcast I've heard you where they interviewed you or you're interviewing someone else. Um, you, you have this great, corporate speak i can tell you've been in a lot of boardrooms very <laughs> articulate and just like well and your train of thought is great i'm the kind of guy where i was born like with my hand on the live wire mm. and my brain is this creative fireworks all the time mm. you know my wife has to sort of rein it in and um energetically like i just go out the door and just blast uh, and then I'm like you know what? i'm gonna do this and spontaneously so i'm very high in trait openness and low let's say in um neuroticism mm. in that way Mm. You know, if you're neurotic, you're going to go through every permutation of what could go wrong, why you shouldn't do something, play devil's advocate. And my, my wife is the perfect counterplay to me because she's opposite in a lot of those ways mm. and tempers me really well. So it helps balance the brand, the businesses that we do. Yeah, um, cool. But I can see how I've influenced her and changed the way that she does things to where at a certain point, you know, once I made my first Olympic team or just before, she decided to drop everything in a awesome corporate position to go back to school and study fashion design and started working mm. for really high end designers in New York city doing their runway shows cool. and just risk everything to move to someplace new. And that's one reason I moved to New York city to be with her. So those things are changeable, you know what I mean? And, and nothing's ever static to the degree they think it is. And now that they've learned more about the brain and plasticity, neuroplasticity, things like that. Um, I, I like to tell my athletes, it's a lot like you walk down a certain path to go over the top of this mountain for so long that you, you so 
also are on this path. Like you see other ones that go over to the left with the meadow of flowers. There's one that dips down and comes back up and it's like boulders. Um, but some of them had thorns in the way. Some of them had rocks in the way. You got to push out of the way. And you're like, oh, that's too much work. I got to clear that path before I go down it. Just stay here. I've already been on this path, you know? And we just don't take the time to start again. So whether it's you taking up judo, um, you know, at a late age <laughs> <laughs> or, or me, like my wife's anniversary on, on in late October, I carved uh, an opal gemstone into a necklace I for her. That. I've never carved a gem, a gem in my beautiful. life before. Like, why, why would you do that? Like, well, I watched that Adam Sandler movie where he played the gem. gem mm. <laughs> and uh, Kevin Garnett wanted that opal, and it was so good luck. He's staring at the thing and winning games. I was like, that's cool, man. Mm. And so I learned about opals, and I dug into opals and everything about them. And I got one from Ethiopia, and I was like, I'm going to shape this into a necklace for her. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And I, I might be embarrassed. I was a little bit embarrassed when I saw the finished product. But like, <laughs> I'm, I'm willing to, to dig in and, and try those things and just, just trail off. So, you know, you, your path is so unique and you're driven by different things than me. But um, it doesn't mean that that switch isn't in there. You know, you could be a hyper-creative version of yourself. You know, if there is a multiverse based on uh, what the smart people tell us, then there is a version of you out there like that. Yeah, I got to <laughs> so find how that, is that guy. I'll have him on the podcast. Uh, it? I don't think it's Neil deGrasse Tyson. It's probably Michio Kaku or some of those guys. He works a lot in string theory. Yeah. Um, but I remember being at Zap Fitness in the mountains in Blowing Rock here in North Carolina. And I was reading a book called The Quantum and the Lotus where they're talking about um, the similarities in Buddhist philosophy with quantum theory. And like, what the hell are you reading? <laughs> I think it was Matt Fitzgerald. He's a, a writer uh, and author. And you wouldn't really make the connection in that way with, with reading these sort of out there things, but they're very grounding mm. because when you find the ground level, and just, you know, if you're going to be a materialist and you say things are atoms and you're going to go lower down to quarks and, you know, smaller quanta and then try to build up from there and how things work, then why wouldn't you do that as an athlete or, you know, an aspirant in business or, or anything else? Because I think I've heard you say that, you know, if you're pushing out a product and you've been working on it a long time, you, you need to just get it out. and It's never going to be perfect. And you work on it as you go. But if you do have a real understanding in why you're doing it in the first place, why you were building it and there's true meaning for you in it that product is going to be light years better than if someone who just is assigned an assignment in an office like it's yeah. done you know yeah it's kind and of a steeplechase for you right i mean passion passion definitely goes a long way with motivation so i think that's uh very well said well it's um yeah so it, does, it applies it applies to everything it does it applies to everything yeah and um i'm i'm happier than i've ever been just um having tapped into those things and have taken those risks. So I just want to see other people be willing to open themselves up in that way. Try something new. We, if athletes get your race results, don't worry about it. <laughs> you put an asterisk next to it that says discovery phase. We'll bring you the asterisk whatever. back just for you. I promise. <laughs> As my promise to you, we will bring the asterisk back. I promise. But yeah, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. I'd look chat again just on the side sometimes. 
Yeah, I can't wait till we're back in in uh, in person. I definitely want to sit down with you. I feel like the um, um, you know the virtual podcast they're they're okay, they're good. They're, you know, it's certainly great talking to you, but I I do miss sitting in front of people and um, you know just kind of sharing sharing um, being able to share a cup of coffee or a beer or something while we're having these conversations. It definitely adds a different dimension. That's for sure. Yeah, and as I've matured, I've I've really grown to appreciate you know the people who put on the races and events like you do, make the sacrifices, volunteer, especially now with COVID, going through all the trouble that it takes mm. to make things happen. And a lot of people are, are doing things they don't necessarily need to yeah. to really get the, the steam going and the wheels moving on the train again. So we yeah. appreciate what you do, man. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, we, we miss it. We definitely miss being out and with the race directors and timers and athletes and everything else. And, um, you know, it'll come back. I've, I've had this conversation a few different times and ways and it feels like we're you know we're we're kind of at that um at the valley again in terms of like looking up at the next five years of innovation and um risk taking and a lot of cool stuff that i think is going to be hitting our industry again where things got a little static a little um a little stale and i'm i think that i think people are going to go a little bit farther out on limbs to uh to entertain people so maybe you'll see some steeplechase triathlons or some different yeah. things out there like that. But, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So, um, this is the time in the podcast where we get down to a 10 question dash. Um, so I'm going to ask you 10 questions. All right. So, uh, here are the rules. So, uh, um, I'm going to ask you 10 questions. Shout out the first answer that comes to mind. No take backs, no crossing fingers, no fibbing. Um, and, uh, if you, if you are ready here, we are going to get going. All right. You ready? I'm ready. All right. <clears throat> Next race, two wheels or two feet? Two feet. Uh, trail or road? I'd like to do trail, but it's going to be road. Oh, okay. Well, uh, winter, spring, summer, or fall, what's your favorite? Fall, 100%. Fall. Everybody says fall. I'm a summer guy. Uh, worst running or riding experience? Was it uh, Meb blowing you off and Dustin passing you and stealing your Lincoln? No, I was uh, having to use the restroom running in Central Park and everything being locked. I ended up going into Trump Tower, or the Trump World Hotel, whatever it is, and they wouldn't let me in. I went in anyway. <laughs> some, I think there's some symbolism in that one. Um, okay, favorite race? Uh, like uh, event-wise or just run-wise? Uh, ev- actual event, like uh, Owned by somebody like Boston Marathon, New York Marathon. Uh, actually, actually, like the um, the Blue Ridge Relay was really fun to run with a team. So okay, I think one of those relays like that. Yeah. Cool, cool. Home stretch song or band on your playlist? You can't name your own band. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I love James Addiction. That was my go-to man. Oh, I'm right uh, there with any, you. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Uh, most embarrassing <laughs> band or artist on your playlist? Uh, there's a lot in there. I think um, one I've listened to recently was Snap, where it's like, Fuck out the power. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I listened to that a lot before. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Uh, <laughs> f- favorite training partner, human or animal? I saw your video of Bailey Rose, so that might be the answer. I love running with my wife. So okay. That's my favorite training partner, yeah. Part, part human, part animal there. Good. Good answer. <laughs> um Living or dead, who would you most like to share a long run with? Living or dead? Hmm. Man, that's a hard one. 
Is there a time limit on this? Yes. You got three seconds. Living your gift. Oh, man. I don't know. I just, I'll say my wife and my son again. Okay. You know, yeah, I, feel like, I feel like I'm in heaven every day, man. No, that's just, you know hey, I mean? there's nothing wrong with running with people you love. Uh, yeah. Do you have a pre-race ritual or superstition? Oh, man. How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, I'll give, I'll give you a couple of them really quick. Uh, the hotel room has to be a palindrome, 101, 202, 303, something like oh, that. Oh, wow. Okay? If my number's a palindrome, it's even better. Super good luck. Secondarily, if this is Doubtfire, comes on TV, you're done for. Wow. You know, I can't put it in the DVD player. I can't buy it. It has to just come on TV. Huh, interesting. Statistically, it always, always usually does when I race in San Francisco. Okay. Like there's, there's more I won't get into. It. Wow, that's pretty good. Okay. There's, there's one superstition where there's one, I won't say what it is, it's one person. If I see them, I hear their name, and they're really famous, or, or anything related to them, I will have the worst race ever. My whole life will fall apart. Oh, Things, no. My girlfriend in high school broke up with me when it first happened. I'll lose races, people get in car accidents. So, yeah, there's the other side of that. Yeah. Oh, no. I was going to say, I hope, it's, I hope it's not me. Uh, um, they opened up. <laughs> I, I don't even say where they opened up at what race I went to when it was a horrible race, but because you'll figure out who it is. All right, very good. All right, we won't ask. <laughs> Uh, final, yeah. final question. Final question. What is the secret? Sleep. 100%. Sleep. Sleep. Yeah. Sleep Ooh. long, sleep hard. That was Off your it. fastest answer. I thought that was going to be the one. I thought we were going to be, be like another 30 minutes. Cause my wife will tell you, she gets mad. I sleep so much. Late. I like to sleep late. I like to stay up late too, but man, it's the, it's the best performance enhancer. Really. Yeah, it is. It yeah. is good. It is good. Well, that was awesome. I appreciate that. Um, any parting words for our listeners there, Mr. Femaletti? No, be the good man. Go out there, world's turning to chaos. And <laughs> you know, don't worry about what other people are doing. You do what you do. Be the good. Oh, cool. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. And I can't wait to... Be at a be at some some conference or trade show with you, and be able to sit down across from you and have another conversation. We didn't get into half the things that I wanted to talk to talk about, frankly. So, still a lot more that we can we can revisit in the future. So, um, that that was fantastic. I really do appreciate it. Anytime. All appreciate right. Appreciate it. Call anytime. Yep. Cool. Cool. And that Thank is you. the show. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. More people racing more often, having more fun in the process is our mission. Thanks again to Anthony Famoletti. Uh, be sure to subscribe to the podcast. We want to hear from you, so leave comments on the socials. We are at Athlinks across the board, or shoot us an email to podcast at athlinks.com. Share it with friends far and wide. Give us a review if you dig it. And until next time, happy racing, everybody. Nice. That's a wrap. <laughs>